you know, at least in the United States of America, the name Jesus to most is not an uncommon name. Uh, it, you know, we have a history, a, a Christian history to some extent, so uh, many would at least be familiar, you know, with the name uh, Jesus Christ. That is not true around the world necessarily. There are certainly some areas that, uh, you know, if you said the name of Christ or if you begin to talk about uh, Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, uh, they, you know, would not understand or have any reference to what you're talking about. And uh, you may remember uh, at some point some of you uh, shared that when we went to Senegal, West Africa, and had a chance to go to a very remote tribe, and begin to talk about uh, Jesus Christ uh, through English, and then translated into French, and then it was translated into the tribal language. And then towards the end of our time with that tribe, uh, they began to smile. And again, it was kind of asked through translation, you know, why are you smiling? And they said, well, because we've never heard this message before, and it makes us happy. Growing up in a Christian home, Albany, Georgia, Atlanta, Macon, Christian College, and then, you know, in Brazil, that was hard for me to, to assimilate and to understand. But I was thrilled to be a part of just be, seeing that happen, seeing the message of Christ go to one other unreached area and to see their, their reaction of being happy to hear about Jesus Christ. Now, some would say Jesus is a great teacher, there's about 4 million people, in fact, in Brazil that uh, follow a branch of spiritism called Kardecismo. And these 4 million people, many of them are very moral and upstanding uh, people in their community. They're very giving. They love to help the poor. They love to uh, help in any way they can better not only their own lives, but the lives of others. In part of doing that, they believe that they are uh, improving their next life. They believe that they have been reincarnated from some previous life, and whatever they do during this life, once they die, then they'll be reincarnated into you know, someone else or somewhere else. And so they think all of this is just a continuous cycle. And they would say, yes, Jesus was a great teacher. Some of their spiritist centers even have, you know, biblical names involved or in, as a part of the spiritist, spiritist center. Some of you may remember uh, Dunny's testimony, that Dunny uh, grew up in part of that, and God miraculously saved her and used his word and uh, Marco's testimony and others to bring her to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. So many would say, yeah, Jesus was a good teacher. Not only the four million of those who follow spiritism, but many that we would even encounter here in the United States of America would say, yeah, I think Jesus taught us how uh, you know, to, to love other people and to be humble and to be kind and to be a peacemaker. There's about 16 million people that follow a cult that believe that Jesus Christ uh, was the brother of Lucifer, but that he won the battle and that Jesus is a small g God, but is not equal with God the Father. And in fact, that cult believes that, that many individuals can become gods and can rule over different planets um, and can repopulate those planets with their eternal wives. So they believe some things about Christ, but then a lot of things are distorted about Jesus Christ. 
an even greater number. I have no idea how many around the world, but far surpasses 16 million for sure. It's an even greater number of Muslims believe that Jesus was a great prophet. They don't believe that Jesus was God's son, and they don't believe that Jesus died on the cross because they have a hard time believing that Allah, their word for God, would allow one of his prophets to be killed in such a manner. So they would say, yeah, Jesus was a great prophet, but certainly didn't die on the cross. Not too far from where we stand and sit this morning in the Fox Theater, uh, later this week, in celebration of 50 years of this play, a little over 50 years, Jesus Christ Superstar will be played out by, I think, Atlanta Broadway in the Fox Theater. There are some elements about Jesus Christ that uh, would match up somewhat to the Bible, but then there's a lot of things that they have taken liberty to, to reinterpret. And Jesus Christ is presented as a man who uh, began to, to get lost in his own fame. And Judas, as, there, as this rendition of it shows, Judas was one of the only disciples, according to, to their interpretation, that saw what was happening and that was concerned for Jesus and that loved him and was trying to save him from himself as he was getting lost in his fame. Jesus then, wanting to go back to a more sincere and simple life, in the end decided that maybe if he died as a martyr, that at least some of his most important teachings would be remembered. But Jesus Christ Superstar doesn't even show the resurrection. It just shows his death. So this morning we're going to see in 1 Corinthians 15 that it's all or nothing. Jesus Christ isn't just a great teacher. Jesus Christ wasn't just a prophet. Jesus Christ certainly did die on the cross, but he didn't just die on the cross, as Jesus Christ Superstar will show, but he rose again. So look with me in 1 Corinthians 15 as we see that Easter, it's all or nothing. We don't have a choice to pick and choose. Either we believe everything or we believe nothing about Christ. In fact, Pastor Timothy Keller uh, served in New York for many years and a very influential uh, person of the kingdom uh, made this statement. He says, if Jesus rose from the dead, then you have to accept all that he said. But if he didn't rise from the dead, then why worry about any of what he said? And so that's why the resurrection, the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ is so crucial. In fact, sometimes it's been called the hinge of all the gospel. If he didn't rise again, we'll see in this passage, then our faith is empty, it's vain. Look with me then in the first four verses of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And we're trying to answer just briefly here, and the, the, the words themselves here in the chapter does a good job. What is the whole gospel? What is the whole gospel? Well, verse 1, we'll start. Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand. So he is addressing Corinthian believers. Now you may remember the Corinthian church, there was no um, book written about, you know, how to do church the Corinthian way. The Corinthian church was problematic. The Corinthian church, unfortunately, had a lot of sin in the church. There were problems that Paul was addressing. And one of the problems We're not going to deal specifically with this context, but one of the problems in 1 Corinthians 15 is that although they believed that Jesus did rise from the dead, some were beginning to question, 
Will we rise from the dead? Will, will our bodies be resurrected at some point? Maybe not. And Paul begins to address that, and he says, okay, this is the gospel, and let's, let's refresh the gospel in which you stand. And then he goes on in verse 2. And by which you're being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Then notice verses 3 and 4. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. Now that's a, that's a key phrase because there are many things that we can disagree about but still have the promise and the blessed hope of eternity together in God's presence. As we talk about the end times and eschatology, eschatology and, and all the timeline of how we think things may happen and how we interpret the book of Revelation, there can be some differences of how we view those things but still be God's children and still be in, in the blessed hope of eternity together. But what Paul's about to mention, he's basically saying, listen, this is priority. There's no negotiating here. These are non-negotiables. And then he goes on. And he says this, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. This is part of the whole gospel. This presupposes, we won't take the time this morning, but this presupposes that Christ uh, did become incarnate. He, he took on flesh and dwelled among us. And as a perfect and sinless God, the Son, withstood all of temptations, was tempted in like manner as we are, the Bible says. But yet without sin, then he was the only one worthy to pay the penalty of our sins. All of this is background to this simple phrase that says, Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. But not only that, we saw, see right next, right after that, it says Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. And then verse 4, that he was buried. That he was buried. Christ's body was buried. In Matthew 27, 57 through 61, and I would encourage you to read this passage some other time, but details are given about his burial. Guards were placed at the request of the Pharisees and some of the chief priests uh, Pilate authorized that guards be placed at the tomb of Jesus just to make sure that the disciples wouldn't you know, try to come and steal the body and make it look like he had risen again. Specific individuals are named. Joseph of Arimathea requested permission to get the body of Christ and to bury uh, the body of Christ in his own tomb. So it is historical that... Christ's body was buried. And then in verse 4, second part of verse 4, that he was buried. And then that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. And it would be a whole another rich Bible study to look back at the prophecies of Christ's death for our sins, of his burial, and then the prophecies of Christ's resurrection. But Paul basically just summarizes and says, he died for our sins according to the Scriptures, he was buried, but then he, was, he rose again also in accordance with the Scriptures. Many of us every day you know, of our life give credence to that with the calendars that we use. Before Christ, B.C., as we look back and study history, that's 
uh, a term that's used even in much of the secular world. Uh, you know, 500 B.C., 722 B.C., you know, before Christ, and then, and then A.D., Anno Domini, in the year of our Lord. So even the calendar gives credence to, yes, Jesus Christ was an, a historical individual, a historical person that did exist. After rising again, Christ appeared to a woman, the very first person, Mary Magdalene, that that talked and communicated with the resurrected Christ was, was a woman. If somebody was trying to make the story up, it would have probably been more believable had Jesus appeared maybe first, you know, to, to a religious, an elite religious leader. So even that gives credence to this is not made up. These are just a, a recording of what actually happened. So many names are mentioned, uh, Peter and John and the disciples and Mary Magdalene and then the other Mary that she's called. And then 1 Corinthians 15, and let's look in the, in the next few verses, it even talks about 500s. Look with me in verses 5 and following. And then he appeared to Cephas, which is Peter, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. Notice this phrase, most of whom are still alive. Though some have fallen asleep, which means they, some have died. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. So Paul is basically saying th- these are specific people and even large groups of people that Jesus appeared to. And those that didn't believe that this happened had so many people that they could have gone to and said, Hey, tell me what you saw. I, I want to question you. I- I- I'm not sure that I believe this. Tell me what you saw. All of this happened, you know, and these, the, the appearances to the different people happened in a period of about 40 days. This wasn't four hours. It wasn't one day from the next, and then all of a sudden Jesus is never seen again. No, it was 40 days. There was time for the, the unbelieving Jews to, to verify this, to challenge this. But in contrast, we see in the Gospels that the guards that Pilate uh, authorized, they were bribed to continue the story that the disciples stole the body. This helps us to believe these things by faith. There's there's evidences. It's not just a blind and, and, and empty faith, but there's evidences that this actually happened. We see that James, it's very possible that the James mentioned here in 1 Corinthians 15 may have been the half brother of Jesus. One who before, early in the New Testament, we see didn't give credence to his half-brother Jesus being the Messiah. And even sometimes would question him and question his motives. But yet after the resurrection, this very well could be the James that became a very important leader in the early church. And then also wrote the book that we know of as James. The resurrection makes a difference. Many of the disciples and Christians of the early church would have had no reason really to continue to serve and follow Christ or the way as it's called even in in the book of Acts. The beginning of the early church and the, 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 the recording of thousands of people coming to know Christ, some to their great peril, to their, their own danger. In Acts chapter 11, I believe, uh, we see uh, one being martyred. Peter is put in prison. Those in Jerusalem were scattered abroad through the book of Acts. 
So this, wasn't, uh, this was not a promise of prosperity. This wasn't like, hey, this is a great life. You know, try it out for yourself. No, it meant if I'm a follower of Jesus Christ, one who is just recently crucified, then I too could experience great persecution. But yet they did because of what they had seen and believed and was true that Christ had risen again. Secondly, what are the results of embracing a partial gospel? So that's the gospel in a nutshell, that he died for our sins according to the Scriptures. He was buried, his body was buried, and then he rose again according to the Scriptures. That's the gospel in a nutshell. That's the whole gospel. None of that can be negotiated. We can't stop at any part. We can't just say, well, yeah, I think Christ was a great person, and he died. No, then he wouldn't be the Savior. We have to believe all or nothing. Second question, then, I believe this chapter helps us to answer is, what are the results of embracing a partial gospel? Look with me in 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 14. The verse here says, And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. So if we embrace a partial gospel, then, well, there's no purpose. There's no purpose. It just says right out, your faith is in vain. The message that you have to share is basically just useless. There's no purpose. None of us enjoy doing uh, meaningless work. We like to, 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 to sense some purpose and some reason why we do what we do. Well, the message is, if you embrace a partial gospel, you have no purpose in the faith that you hold if it's only a partial gospel faith. Secondly, 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 17, a few verses ahead, there's no change. If you just believe a partial gospel, then there's no change for you. There's no transformation. It says if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. So if you just embrace a partial gospel, if you just believe, well, I think Christ was a good teacher. I think maybe he was a prophet, but I don't think Christ was God the Son. I don't think Christ was perfect necessarily. I don't think Christ maybe is the only Savior. Well, that's a partial gospel, and this passage makes it very clear. You will remain in your sins, and you will not be redeemed. There's no change. One verse following in verse 18, 1 Corinthians 15, 18, it says, Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. There's no future. If we don't embrace the whole gospel, we only embrace a partial gospel, then those who have died before us, even claiming that they know Christ, well, if Christ didn't rise from the dead, and, and if we can't be risen from the dead and glorified in heaven, then there's no future. They've just perished. Just, you just kind of come to the end of your life and, well, well that's it. There's no future. So this kind of can go to two extremes. Some who would embrace that would think, okay, well, if there's not much future beyond my last breath, then I'm going to live it up. I'm going I'm to explore every sense of pleasure and sin and excitement and adventure that I possibly can because this is all I have. This is the only hope that I can look forward to. This is the only excitement that I can expect to experience. So I've got to live it up while I'm still alive. That's 
One extreme. Get all you can get. Another extreme would be, well, if this is it, if there's no future after this, if after my last breath, then that's, that's the end of me forever, well, then I have to be very careful. And it can lead to great despair. It can lead to great fear to think, well, I have to be very careful because I'm in control of all that I have is just right now and right this minute. That's a partial gospel. There's no future. And all this really kind of comes together in verse 19. There's no hope if we embrace a partial gospel. Look what it says in verse 19. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. If we only have hope in this life only, if we only embrace a partial gospel, if we, if we only think, well, Jesus maybe could at least help my life to not be as bad here on earth. Paul says, listen, you are of most people to be pitied. There's no hope in that. Thankfully, that is not the message that we believe, nor it is a message that true, that's true. Follow along and look at the very next ver- verse in verse 20. We begin to see what are the evidences of the whole gospel. What are the evidences of the whole gospel? In 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 20, Paul starts out with a very bold but true statement. He says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. Amen? But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. So he's doing this whole argument. He starts off with the, with the summary of the gospel. He says, this is the whole gospel. This is of first importance. You can't negotiate any of that. And if you embrace a partial gospel, well, then there's no purpose. There's no change. There's no future. You're still in your sins. So all of that, there's no hope for you. But in fact, he says, he comes back and says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. Then we begin to see some of the processes or some of the, some of the evidences of that. Look with me also in verse 20. We begin to see God's process at work. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Probably, I may have my timing off. Uh, I'm not the, the gardener necessarily of my family. I cut the grass, but anything beyond that, it's not really in my category. It's just I don't do that. But Kim and Michael planted about nine or ten tomato plants, maybe eight months ago, nine months ago, on our back deck. It's covered so the deer couldn't get to it, and they had pots there. And I did hang the strings so that the tomato plants could kind of grow up the string and uh, it was kind of kind of interesting, you know. We began to see these tomato plants grow, but as the as the little bitty plants were planted in the nice soil, and and then Mike would water it, you know, when he came home from school, and every day he would check those tomato plants. And the first day where he began to see a tiny little first fruit, a tiny little tomato, he lit up. Why? Because he knew more tomatoes were to come. So what he and mom and Kim, or what he and Kim had planted, they were beginning to show the first fruits of all the other tomatoes that were about to come. And so every day after that, he would come home, and as soon as they were big enough to pick, he started picking them. That was his afternoon snack. He'd, be, he'd bring some to me. Hey, Dad, you want a tomato? Sure, son. <laughs> Why not? 
But he loved them. He'd, he'd put salt on them and he'd just pop them in his mouth. He loved the tomatoes because they were the first fruits of all that were to come. And they gave quite a few little tomatoes throughout the next few months. The Bible uses that illustration and says, well, Christ has been raised as the first fruits. So Paul is saying, listen, Corinthian believers, since you believe that Jesus Christ did die for your sins, that he was buried and that he rose again, then you can also believe that you will be raised again. That your, your plan, your path, God's glorification of you will happen. We see then that God has a process Christ is the first fruits. Notice verses 21 and 22 of 1 Corinthians 15. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as, verse 22 of 1 Corinthians 15, for as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. How many of you um, would say, Pastor David, I am, I would say, yes, I am, I am in Adam. I am of, you know, Adam's flesh. You raise your, raise your hand. All of us, we're all in Adam. I mean, do we call him like Uncle Adam or, you know, what, but we're all in Adam in the sense that we have the same flesh. We have the same sin nature. We are in Adam. But thankfully, the process is that through Christ, although in Adam, and if we remain in that condition, then we don't have any hope. We are and will be separated from God for eternity. But yet the hope is, so also in Christ, all shall be made alive. So through the gospel of Jesus Christ, through his death, burial, resurrection, and forgiveness of our sins, then those of us who are in Adam can then be transferred to the kingdom of God and become children in Christ and be made alive through the salvation in Jesus Christ. So we see God's process at work. We also see God's power in this passage Look with me at 1 Corinthians 15 and starting at verse 35. 1 Corinthians 15 and starting at verse 35. It starts off with a, a question, and these are probably some of the individuals in the Corinthian church that began to doubt a bodily resurrection of believers later in time. It says, but someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? Paul answers, You foolish person. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what we're going to see here is we begin to see Paul referring back to even God's creation and some of the design in other ways that we see among God's creation about God's power at work. He says, And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel. Perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same, for is there, there is one kind for humans, another for animals. Even as, you know, mu even as, as much as our culture loves animals, 
and you have PetSmart and, you know, all these things, and you have, you know, hotels for animals, and you, you, you do birthday parties for animals sometimes, and, and there's, there's so, so much, you know, uh, affinity to, to pets. I, I, I want to remind you, we are different. You know, we're, we're different than animals, and the Bible makes that very clear. That's part of God's power at work that he has created and formed all these different things. He says there's one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, another for fish. That's a blessing because we've killed probably 20 little fish in our aquariums at house. We just don't have luck with them, so glad that they're not on the same level as humans. They're heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars, for star, stars differ, for star differs from star in glory. So each star has unique characteristics even. And all of that shows God's amazing and phenomenal power. I showed this last night, uh, or yesterday afternoon, at a, uh, a Bridges event. Let's see, let's get it up on, I'll tell you what, Jess, can I use that table for a second? All right. So what do you see on the front? Miracle of creation. So in the miracle of creation, we see that, um, I'll try to get back. So the miracle of creation, that's going to represent, and I used this yesterday afternoon, uh, and at some point, I think early on in the church plan, I maybe alluded to this illustration as, uh, as well that I read in a book and has been really uh, encouraging to me. But let's imagine this represents all of creation. So the sun, the moon, the stars, the animals, uh, birds, uh, fish, humans, you know, all of that, let's just imagine that that's kind of in that box. And God, uh, the Lord, our creator, created all of that. That in and of itself is a huge miracle. I am, I am, I've learned a lot more uh, in my adult years to, to do things with my hands, and I enjoy working, and, and I, I like to work hard, but I, I'm not the most crafty with my hands. I, I don't fare well at taking wood and making something useful out of it. I have high hopes that Michael's going to far excel in his skill uh, than I have. But we, we see in creation how phenomenal God has created everything around us, including ourselves. As we get older, and, and maybe even some of you who are younger who have experienced some, uh, some unique health difficulties, we are reminded time and time again of how complex and uniquely made our bodies are. May we remember that the, it's called the practice of medicine. All these things remind us that this was a huge miracle that God, because out of his spoken word, created all that we know and so much that we'll, we'll never have an idea that even exists. That's God's power. So we begin to see, even as Paul alludes back to creation and how God has created different things uh, in different glories. So hold that thought, and we're going to kind of come back to the illustration here in a minute. We then begin to see in verses 42 through 49, redemption and glorification. Redemption and glorification. Verse 42 of 1 Corinthians 15 
says, so is it with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. And verse 45 says, thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. And this references all the way back to Genesis chapter 2 and verse 7. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. Jump down to verse 49. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, so we've all confessed that we are in Adam, that's how we were born. That's, that's the flesh we have. That's the makeup that we have. We are in Adam. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, I would suspect that probably all of us had to sleep at least a few hours last night because we're not machines. Most of us ate at least something this morning and drank something this morning or will eat or drink something today because we can't live without nourishment forever. So in these ways, we're giving evidence that, yes, we are, we're, we're in Adam, and we represent man of the dust. But it says, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. And this passage makes that very clear that it's none other than Jesus Christ, God the Son. The one that died according, for our sins according to scriptures, was buried, but then rose again. So in light of that, in light of even the power of, of our creator to do all that he did, then it's not a far stretch to believe also that not only did Christ was Christ risen from the dead, but that in, in God's sovereignty and his perfect timing, God as almighty creator can intervene in his own creation. He's the one that created life. He's the one that created all the universe. So it's not unrealistic to understand and believe that God is very capable of reaching down and intervening into his own creation and not only give life, but restore life. And as this promise, as this passage promises us, that we not only have the opportunity to be redeemed from those in Adam, from those who are lost in their sin, but we also have the, the phenomenal and blessed and exciting hope and promise that our bodies will be glorified forever in, in God's presence in heaven. Amen to that. I'm excited about that. I won't have to keep thinking, okay, I, gotta, I need to go to Planet Fitness. I need to get on my bike. I, I can't drink as much sweet tea as I'd like to. I'm going to have to put those Reese's Pieces back in the fridge you know, until tomorrow. I, I can't eat them all at one time. Because all these things, and then even more importantly, will never, ever, ever have to struggle with sin, the temptation of sin once again. Now that is a hallelujah right there. That's not just an amen. That's a hallelujah because I get exhausted as a human, as in, in Adam, as of the dust, it is exhausting sometimes to continue to fight and face temptation. But we have the hope that says that's not forever. And just as God, our created, creator, made all the universe, he also is very powerful. And God and Bible makes it clear that he will intervene and we will be not only redeemed, but glorified with our perfect bodies. You know, Jesus Christ resurrected Christ 
is probably the closest model that we have to that. He was, he was still flesh. He met with people. He, he still ate you know, food with people during that time frame. But yet he walked through walls. You know, I've seen that happen on Chronicles of Narnia. But we see in Scripture, that's what the resurrected Christ did. So it gives us a glimpse of, of some things to come and reasons that we have and evidences of this whole gospel. Lastly, I want to cover in the last few minutes here, what are the results of embracing the whole gospel? What are the results of that? First of all, there is a hope-filled life. A hope-filled life. One for salvation. Paul in this passage recounts even some of his own experience. We see Paul the persecutor in 1 Corinthians 15 Verses 8 through 10, it says, Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle. Why? He says, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. So we have a hope-filled life that no matter how you sit in this room and what you've done in the past, or maybe even what you're involved in right now, the gospel is enough and God's grace is enough to save you and to save me. John Newton, who's a former slave trader, And the SV commentary included this part of what John Newton said. He was the the songwriter of Amazing Grace also. But notice how he, he phrased it. John Newton said this, I am not what I ought to be, not what I might be, not what I wish to be. I'm not what I hope to be, but I'm not what I once was, a child of sin and slave of the devil. I think I can truly say with the apostle, by the grace of God, I am what I am. John Newton said that, and we can too. Doesn't matter my past, but because of God's amazing grace, I can have a hope-filled life. Not only for Paul the persecutor, but we see also the Corinthians who were the problematic believers. There was immorality in the church. There were Christians, one suing another. There were, there's all types of division. 1 Corinthians chapter 3 talks about, one says, I'm of Paul. I'm of Apollos. And Paul says, listen, God's the one that gives the increase. So there, this is a problematic people. But yet the gospel we see in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 11, it says, whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. So whether it's Paul the persecutor, or whether it's the Corinthians, the problematic people, or you and me, we have a hope-filled life for salvation. But we also have a hope-filled life for service. Look with me in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 30. Paul says, why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. 
Paul says, if it weren't for the hope and the truth of the resurrection, not only of Christ, but my future resurrection and glorification in heaven, then what purpose do I have to suffer, to face those who, who maybe even persecute me now? You know, I used to be a persecutor of the church, but now, now I am the persecuted. He says, well, if it weren't for the resurrection, then I wouldn't have hope. But yet, because in fact Christ did raise from the dead, we have a hope-filled life for salvation and also for service. 1 Corinthians 15, 50. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perish, perishable inherit the, perish, the imperishable. And then verses 54 and following. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. This is an awesome verse, verse 57. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through who? Say it it a little bit louder. Through who? Our Lord Jesus Christ. He gives us then a hope-filled life, not only for salvation, but even for service that we can we can be, be hopeful, and even when we fear even death, and say, well, Christ has already won. He's the first fruits. But we should also, another evidence should be a pure life, 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 33, a pure life. Do not be deceived, Paul says, bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God, and I say this to your shame. So from the context of of the proof and the truths of the resurrection, not only of Jesus Christ, but the future promise and hope of our own resurrection, Paul says, listen, it should motivate us to live purely for God. This isn't all we have. We have a much greater hope and blessed eternity in store. John Put it this way in 1 John 3, verses 2 and 3. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him. Because we shall see Him as He is, and everyone who thus hopes in Him, notice what they do, everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies Himself as He is pure. So the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the truth and promise of our future resurrection should motivate us, even in our service and in our life, to live purely. 1 Corinthians 15, 58, we're going to see kind of the remaining evidences. So the last verse of the chapter, 1 Corinthians 15, 58, another evidence of this, of the whole gospel is a, a connected life. Paul says, therefore, my beloved, and then what term does he use? Brothers, the gospel and, and the gospel life and the gospel journey is not to be lived alone. Thank God we're, we're not, you know, in our little rooms on, on Easter Sunday, all kind of doing our own thing. What a blessing it is to be able to gather together and sit across from a table and share each other's lives and what we went through last week, praises and difficulties. 
and sing, you know, sing together with music and be able to lift our voices and look in God's word because we are connected as brothers and as family in Christ. That's an evidence of a whole gospel. We have a stable life. The, the very next part in 1 Corinthians 15 says, be steadfast, be immovable. In the beginning of this chapter, Paul, you may remember in verse 1 it says, in which you stand, you know, this gospel that I preach, in which you stand, and then he later says, if you hold fast. How many of you have um, ridden on like a a MARTA or, you know, um, public transportation where you've had to stand up and hold on to something? Okay, a, a good number of you. So for quite a few years in Sao Paulo, uh, we got on the, 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 the metro, is what they call it there, the metro, a lot. And at different times of the day, I mean, it was jam-packed full of people. And so there's bars, you know, along the side, and then there's poles in the middle. And, you know, sometimes our kids would get a little adventuresome, and they're like, look, Dad. You know, and then the metro would, would start, and they'd like fall down, you know, like, okay, you know, you might want to hold on to the pole. Or groups would come down, and this was classic. You know, normally youth, youth groups would come down, and, and the teenage boys would be like, ah, look at me, I don't have to hold on. Until it came to a sudden stop, and they hit their head against the window, and the girls go, look at you. So you hold on, you know, to a bar or to a pole, and no matter how the metro car moves, you're stable. You're steadfast. You're immovable. As we hold on to the blessed truths of a whole gospel, no matter what moves around us, whether our financial situation moves, whether my own health situation moves, whether the political situation around me falls apart, no matter what happens, if I'm holding fast to this, I'm steadfast, I'm immovable, not because I'm strong, but because of what I cling to, it secures me and grounds me in Christ. We can be steadfast and immovable. Diane Frey, a former coworker of ours for almost 10 years, just, a, just about a week and a half ago, suddenly discovered that she had a, a, a brain tumor about the size of a lemon in her brain. But yet, very few visitors could go to the hospital in Sao Paulo and visit her, but one lady was, was allowed in, and after the visit, she said Diane was calm and was hopeful. Why? Because she was holding on to this. She wasn't holding on to her health, She wasn't holding on to what might happen in a month or two months. But Diane Frey, who's also lost uh, several years ago, uh, one of her daughters at 13 years old, learned then and is still learning, this is what can keep me stable and secure. It's God's message, nothing else. We see a fruitful life in 1 Corinthians 15. latter part of verse 58 says, Always abounding in the work of the Lord. Always abounding in the work of the Lord. Used this illustration yesterday with the Bridges event also is that with the, in the days of DVR and recording things, I'm sure many of you, like I have, have recorded a game and then gone back later to watch it, maybe later that night. But if somebody spoils it along the way and before you can start the game, maybe you look at your phone and somebody says, oh, the Braves, you know, won it or whatever. And you're watching that last game, and there's the ups and downs of, you know, getting it out or sliding into base, and you're not sure, you know, what's going to happen. But if you know the outcome, then you're not as moved by the ups and downs of a game because you know who wins in the end. 
You may even keep a secret and kind of laugh at everybody else as they go, oh, oh. But you, as you watch, you go, I know what's going to happen. Listen, we have the final story. We know what's going to happen. We do know who wins. And so because of that, I should be able to live a fruitful life, always abounding in the work of the Lord. And then lastly, 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 58, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Hebrews 11.6 says, Without faith it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Remember one of the results of embracing a partial gospel? That there's, not, there's no future. You know, when you die, you, you die. There's no eternal perspective. But in contrast, we can serve confidently knowing that our Lord is eternal. In fact, also in Hebrews, it says, keep your life free from love of money. Maybe that's something that some people are tempted to, instead of hanging on to that pole in the metro or hanging on to God's, God's gospel, we're, we're hanging on to money. In Hebrews it says, keep your life free from love of money. Be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. That's what we cling to. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my help, helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Still strong, still stable, still steadfast. Remember your leaders, Hebrews 13, 7 says. Those who spoke to you the word of God, consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Why? Because it says Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes with me this morning?